Max just had a baby. Doesn't he look great? <laughs> no, I can't believe Rachel's like up and going. She's she's a bad dude. Uh, James chapter 5, we're going to be wrapping up the book of James. So sad. Uh, for some, it's been a really hard, convicting book. Um, things that uh, Asian like myself really likes because I grew up in a militant home. And um, others of you that aren't familiar with that are like, that's too hard. Don't do that. Like, sorry. I, I'm sorry. So we're going to wrap up the book of James, chapter 5. And um, it's about getting prepared. So most girls grow up dreaming of having a, a perfectly beautiful wedding day. I have two daughters. Yeah. And sometimes that, that day is really beautiful. And uh, let me ask you some questions about that, though. Does, does a wedding plan itself? Or how much planning goes into it? Amen. And, and it and actually takes like months of planning, right? And preparation by the, the bride and her mom, her mom-in-law, and sisters, friends. And it takes a lot of financial resources as well, right? I um, Actually, for, for my wedding, I saved uh, 10% of all my paychecks since college for my wedding. And um, because I, I didn't know if my wife's parents would be able to afford it. So it was just something that was put in my heart that I would do. And so when the time came for Katie and I to get married... Um, and her parents were like, no, we, we can only afford this. We only want you to do that and do this. And she called me crying from Spain because that's where we, we got engaged. And she was like, my parents can only do this. And I was like, just do whatever you want. It's okay. We, we're, we're covered. And, and so it takes a lot of planning, right? It took me planning from when I was 18. And um, it takes a lot of planning to pull off a fine meal also, right? When my wife invites people over for dinner, she spends a lot of time preparing. She thinks about what our guests will like to eat. Like, are they vegan? Do they like fish? You know, what kind of vegetables do they like? And they, are they allergic to anything? And then she maps out an entire menu. Like, she's on Iron Chef or something. Like, she maps it all out. And then she buys ingredients from not one or two places, but like three to four places. Right? She goes, no, that place is good for this, and this place is good for that. So she'll go, and then she cooks all day. And then when you eat at the meal, you have no idea that that much preparation went into the meal. And there are many things that take planning and preparation. And we also encourage that of others as to be wise in planning and prepare. We encourage our children to prepare for their future by working hard and studying so they can have a successful career or be successful at whatever they're doing. And at this rate, Social Security won't be available to us 80 maybe, if we're lucky. So our career is going to last us, you know, 60 years. But think about the afterlife, a life that's everlasting, forever. Isn't it interesting that we as Christians will put more time getting ready for a few brief decades of working, but spend little or no time getting ready for eternity? 
In Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, John tells us that the Christian church is like a bride getting ready for a feast. John says that she is to be prepared, that she is to be dressed appropriately. And let's, let's read what the preparation entails. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We as believers, as a church, are to be ready for the wedding feast with fine linen that is clean and bright. And the linen mentioned in Revelation stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Wouldn't it be horrible to be invited to like the party of parties and that, are, that requires fine clothing, but you couldn't go because everything you had was dirty and dull? And James wants us to be ready for this feast, the feast to end all feasts. And James wants us ready to meet God with our finest attire. He wants us ready for the second coming of Jesus. He wants us to know that it isn't easy getting prepared and ready, so he gives us some hints. Remember that James sees us as part of his family. You're going to notice how often he calls us brethren in this last, in these last few verses of James. He wants us blessed not just in our present life, but for all of eternity. And James is now in eternity, and he wants us to join him there in joy, not in judgment. And let's see what he advises us, which actually may surprise some of you. He might tell us, he might not tell us what we are expecting him to say. Verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rains. James brought the issue of the ultimate judgment before us in his remarks about the ungodly rich and their destiny in last week's message. And now he calls Christians, especially those enduring hardship, to be patient, to patiently endure until the coming of the Lord. And in preparation for the Lord's return, the Lord's coming judgment, we are to be patient like good farmers who have to be patient for a good crop. We are to imitate the patient endurance of a farmer. See, a farmer doesn't give up when his crop isn't being able to be harvested right away. He keeps working on it even if he can't see that crop. And likewise, Christians must work hard and exercise patient endurance even when the harvest day seems so far away. And it can't be seen. We are to be strong and stand firm for the Lord's return. And there's this phrase in verse 7, until it receives the early and latter rain. Some believe that this is an allegorical picture of an early and a latter outpouring of the Holy Spirit of the church. The Bible does explain that there's going to be a significant outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days, such as in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. But I don't believe that this is what it is in James. I don't believe it's an allegorical picture. James' picture of the early and latter rain is literal. He's referring to the early rains that come in late October, early November, and the latter rains that come in late March through early May. And the bulk of the year's rainfall came in between those early and latter rains. Three-fourths of the, the year's rainfall came in December and January. But James points out the early and the latter rains because those are really critical times for a farmer. The early rains are necessary to soften the ground for plowing. You don't have anything to farm without plowing, right? The plowing allows for oxygenation of the soil, 
So the farmer has to wait for these rains to make plowing possible, allowing for oxygenation of the soil and having a good soil. And then also enough water so that a seed that's planted can start to germinate. And the latter rains are crucial to mature the crops before the harvest. If the farmer prematurely picks the crop, it won't reach its full maturity, meaning that he won't get as much for his crop. If, if he would just wait patiently and wait for that crop to mature, he would get more for that in the marketplace. And farmers need to be patient with their crop because their family and the community were dependent on a good harvest. Verse 8, You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we're to be patient like farmers waiting for Jesus' return. We're to establish your hearts. Meaning we have to have hearts that are rooted in Jesus and His promises because Jesus is returning soon. Now that's the general instruction, but what does it mean to be patient? What specific things should we be about? Let's see how we can acquire with patience the needed linen garments for the upcoming party. Verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. One way we get ready for Jesus Christ's return is to not grumble against one another, to not personally attack one another with hostile speech. You would think, you would think James would say something like, make some type of religious commitment or do some type of ritual or believe some type of truth, but instead he says, do not grumble against a fellow Christian. And in times of adversity, we can be less than loving towards our Christian brothers and sisters. It makes it's easier for us to play the blame game for the difficult situations we find ourselves in with our spouse or our children or other Christians. And James reminds us that we can't be complainers in our hardship and let our emotions take control of us. He says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door, implying that Christians who complain about others and criticize fellow believers need to realize that Almighty God is the judge of all. God hasn't given that task of judgment to you and I. And some Christians will be caught wearing dirty linens because of grumbling, grumbling against one another. Verse 10 and 11, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. It's always comforting to know that others have gone through what we are going through or will be going through. And James gives us two examples of how we are to be patient in our suffering like those who have gone before us. The first thing is the suffering or the persecution that comes our way if we are loyal to Jesus. If we speak up for our faith, for our Lord, or if we speak the truths that God gives us, we are like the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets of the Old Testament endured adversity yet practice patient endurance. So take Jeremiah, for example. Jeremiah endured maltreatment with patience. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 2, he was put into stocks. Not investments, stocks. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 2, he was thrown into prison. In Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 6, he was lowered into a miry dungeon. But through all those hardships, he still persisted in his ministry, persisted in his faith. And the second is the loss of physical health, financial position, and spiritual reputation that was suffered by Job. And yet he didn't give up on his faith. He persevered. Job had a patient endurance that was anything but passive, though. 
He had some resentment. He had a lot of questions. He had some agony. But his story shows the necessity of a constant trust, a constant faith through times of tragedy. And it shows God's promises of compassion and mercy in our adversity. That God will deliver us. And in the middle of our trials, it may seem that God's mercy and compassion are nowhere in sight, but we are encouraged to patiently endure hardship and see the goodness of God in the land of the living in our present time. Psalms chapter 27, verses 13 and 14. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Some of us are so focused on the future and not really enjoying what the Lord has blessed us with right now. God is a compassionate and merciful God. And He blesses you right now. And you just need to recognize that. You don't always have to look to the future to realize that God has blessed you. And many of us know of people or who have heard of people who have lost their lives because they wouldn't deny Christ. But how many of us will just stand up for Christ here in the Bay Area where our life is not threatened? Are we willing to lose money, our health, our reputation, and bear it patiently because of our loyalty to God? And if we can suffer patiently in such ways, then we're getting our clothes ready. We're getting it ready for the great feast. We're preparing ourselves for His return. Verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. The Jews during James' time made distinctions between binding oaths and non-binding oaths. An oath that was left out that left out the name of God was considered non-binding. It's like when kids cross their fingers when they tell a lie. Like, no, I didn't take a cookie. right? And like that makes it okay. And when they say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Do, do kids still say that? Or am I just old? They, okay, they still, good. They still say that. So James is condemning this kind of an oath. And the Bible doesn't forbid the swearing of all oaths. There are examples of God swearing oaths, like in Luke chapter 1 verse 73, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 11, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13. And maybe James is saying that we shouldn't swear the type of oath that is deceptive or flippant or impatient or unwise. That we should be more focused on prayer, which we will get into several hours from now after I get to verse 13. And notice how James echoes the teaching of his brother, Jesus, on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. I'll just give it to you for a reference. Don't you think that if you need to swear, that it tells people that you're usually lying when you're not swearing or taking an oath? The need to swear or make an oath beyond a simple and clear yes or no betrays the integrity of what you say. An oath is only needed where there's dishonesty. An oath is only taken when there's no trust that the truth is to be told. See, the Essenes, the Essenes were a Jewish sect, uh, the ones responsible for writing the Dead Sea Scrolls. They forbade taking oaths. Their belief was that if an oath was necessary for someone to tell the truth, then that person is already not trustworthy. It shows others that there isn't anything of substance to your character for them to believe your words. Only a person who lies needs to make an oath in order to convince people they're telling the truth. So when we say yes, then it's yes. In other words, we're to be so truthful 
that we never need to swear, that our word is our bond, that some of us think so little of keeping our word or not telling the truth when it really means a lot to do that. But if you say yes to something, then it should be followed through. I got convicted of this right before this service, actually like 10 minutes ago. A gal came up to me and said, hey, did you talk to somebody about the premarital counseling thing? Like, I didn't. My yes was not a yes. And um, totally got convicted of that. And so, wherever you are, I'm going to do that tonight, right after this. And there are a lot of people that say yes to various ministry opportunities, or yes to various things, but they have really poor follow-through. And end up never doing what they said they were going to do. And, you know, that really shouldn't be. And if we say no, then we should follow through with that. We need to be people who are trustworthy. And if what you do contradicts what you say, then that trust is really hard to establish. And we make all kinds of excuses, but James says this this is how we acquire clean and bright linens. By telling the truth so consistently that we never need to swear. He says, lest you fall into judgment. If we lack this type of character, it's going to be exposed at the judgment seat of Jesus. So this should be a motivating factor for us to speak with integrity so we're better prepared for that judgment. And now James is going to go on to describe some things about righteous people. People who are getting clean and bright garments ready as uh, we all should be. So let's read what we are to be about. Verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. According to James, we should be praying when in trouble and singing when we're happy. Notice that the advice is the same for the one who is suffering and for the one who is cheerful. We're to bring it to the Lord. We are to communicate with God. Whether singing or praying, we are to bring our cheerfulness or our sadness to the Lord. We're to come before the Lord whatever state we're in, in our suffering or when we're cheerful. And this doesn't mean we sit idle and don't do anything. It means we aggressively seek God no matter what state we're in. And keep in mind that sometimes we're suffering as a result of God's chastening in our lives. We should pray and ask God to reveal to us what He wants us to do when we're suffering. Perhaps we're not doing something we know should be done like stopping a habitual sin in your life that you've said no to, but you keep going back to it. And there's a difference between suffering and sickness. When we're suffering, we are told to pray. When we are sick, we're to ask the elders to pray for us in our sickness. And sometimes it's both. So we pray, and we also ask others to pray for us. And James goes on to say more about prayer. When someone is sick, we can expect the elders to pray that they're that they get better or that their sin can be forgiven. And when we are visited, we are to expect either health and or forgiveness of sins as we pray for those things. Verse 14 tells us to call for the elders when we are sick for prayer and anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Note that this verse tells the person, the sick person, to call. Let him call. Sometimes when we're sick, we wait for the church to figure out that we're sick. How are we supposed to know? And why do people hesitate to ask for prayer from the church leadership when they're sick? 
That's part of why we're here. We want to pray for your healing. We want to intercede on your behalf. See, Christianity is a social gospel. The church throughout history has cared for the sick. Mother Teresa in India is the prime example of that. The gifts of healing has always been with the church. So use us. That's part of why we're here. Verse 14 doesn't mean medicine shouldn't be used, as some cults believe. In fact, I think that this verse tells us to use medicine. Oil, usually olive oil back then, was thought to have medicinal properties. So it was used for the massages of aches and pains. So if you had a headache, you know, they'd massage the oil on your head. So it was thought to have a medicinal property. And no, I'm not going to give you an oil massage when you call me when you're sick. (laughs) At least not for free. (laughs) So I'll just put a dab on your head. You know, unless you're like a huge sinner, then I'm going to pour a whole gallon on your head. But other than that, it's just, that's it, okay? And people used to used oil to cleanse wounds. Remember Dr. Luke, who wrote the parable of the Good Samaritan? In Luke chapter 10, verse 34, he tells of how the Samaritan helped the wounded man by bandaging his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them. Those were cleansing agents. Now, how is it that some churches expect so little from the prayers of their elders from their churches? Maybe their elders are too busy judging others like in verse 9. Maybe they're not standing up for the Lord or bearing the suffering that comes with it like in verse 10. Or they don't always tell the truth like in verse 12. Remember, prayer offered in faith by righteous persons is powerful. If we would follow verses 9 through 12 then we could expect to be more like verses 13 through 16. Maybe we should be expecting more from our prayers than we're expecting or than we're getting. In verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now some people wonder if this verse guarantees healing for the sick that are prayed for in faith. Notice the phrases, save the sick, raise him up, and he will be forgiven. I believe James is referring to spiritual work and spiritual healing and not necessarily physical healing. However, I don't believe that the verse excludes physical healing as an answer to prayer. I do believe it's more than physical healing, but I don't believe that it means the absence of physical healing. And we should pray for others in faith with an expectation that God's going to heal them. But after we pray, we should leave it in God's hands. I haven't had a time when I went to pray for someone, for someone's healing, that they were immediately healed. And it doesn't mean that they weren't healed. It just means that it didn't happen right there and then. And sometimes I've prayed for healing and it didn't happen until much later. And it was still a miracle of God for that person to be healed from whatever they had. But he was doing his thing on his timing. And perhaps God is testing our faith. Testing that person's faith. Perhaps He's giving us an opportunity to align our heart to His. To feel their pain. To allow us to see how much it impacts their family. And when I do hospital visits or house visits for the sick, I, I totally pray in faith. And I totally believe God's going to heal that person. But it's never happened immediately for me. In fact, there were a few times that I've prayed that they got worse. 
So I guess if you're sick, you're not going to ask for prayer from me. But, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for the sick. There are people who aren't healed because there was no prayer of faith for them. To pray for the sick is a good thing. And I think the best way to approach it is with a humble confidence that God's going to heal them. And after we pray, we just leave it in God's hands. See, we don't have to worry about if they get healed or not. God's reputation doesn't rest on my ability to heal someone through my prayers. God can take care of Himself. We just need to have compassionate hearts and bless people with our prayers. And for some of that, for some people that may just mean that they get worse. God works in mysterious ways. And He's doing something in that. It doesn't always mean that healing is what He wants. His, his, his mind is set on eternity. And so for something in the present to happen, He's looking at eternal impact. And I know that regeneration has many faults. And we don't have perfect lives here. God already knows that. He's the judge. The greatest sickness we have isn't physical illness. It's a spiritual illness. Spiritual illness caused from our sin. And physical illness can only kill the body. And it's going to die away soon anyway, right? But sin kills us forever. And remember that James is our brother. He loves us, even those of us who have been shown to be imperfect after reading this little short book. But he's there to encourage us. Verse 16, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Here's a reminder from James that mutual confession and prayer brings healing in physical and spiritual ways. Confession and prayer frees us from the heavy burdens of unresolved sin, and it removes hindrances that the Holy Spirit has in order to work in us. And notice that the verse mentions one another. Don't you find it easier to confess to God what you've done wrong than it is to an actual person? I find it easier to do that. Especially to confess directly to the person that you've wronged. That's a hard thing, isn't it? See, we need to confess to one another. Why? We need to break down the barriers between us that that can cause a division between us as a community, as, as friends, as brothers and sisters. And yes, we need to confess to God, but sometimes we just use that as an excuse so that we don't have to deal with people. And we think, you know what, I've already dealt with God, so I don't have to apologize to that person. I don't have to right a wrong. Really? Yes, you took care of your business with God, but it's not complete. You have to deal with that person. God created us to live in a community, to exercise forgiveness with one another. He wants us to be like Him, to exercise the forgiveness, to exercise the love, to exercise restoration and reconciliation. It's not just to say, God, I'm sorry, and then move on with your life. Confession to one another is important because sin loves isolation. It likes to be alone with you. And it wants you to itself. What confession does is it breaks the bondage of secret sin. Sin's grip on you is loosened and its power is loosened as you confess those things, as you make them public, as you shed them under a light. And confession doesn't have to be done with me or another pastor or an elder or some church person. 
The Bible simply says to confess to one another, to another Christian. The root form of confess literally means to say the same thing. It means that in in confessing sin, we agree to identify it by its true name and admit that it's sin. I don't understand why people call it an affair. An affair is like going to a party, right? It's adultery. Just call it what it is. It's not an affair. Confession is good. Just do it with discretion and with tact. Not all of your confession is just appropriate with anyone, right? If you're a middle-aged man... We have one kid in here. I'll tone it down PG-13. If we have a middle-aged man and he's dealing with sexual sin, it's not appropriate for you to go to a college girl and confess your sin, right? Duh! Okay? Or no duh. It means the same thing. Duh or no duh music. All of your confessions with just anyone is not appropriate. Unwise confession of sin can cause more sin. So keep in mind that it has to be appropriate. It has to be tactful. Okay? And keep in mind that confession of sin is good when physical healing is desired. It's possible that a person's sickness is the direct result of some sin that hasn't been dealt with. As Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. It's not always the case, but I think it should be explored and it should be prayed about. And when we are the ones who hear the confession, we should have the proper response. A response of love of intercessory prayer. And don't be so quick to offer your own wisdom. Don't gossip or share their needs with others. It's their confession. It's not for you to confess their sins. Right? Encourage the confessor to share with others. Share with others who are trustworthy. But you don't have to go about sharing what they're dealing with. Not your business. It says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Perhaps much of our prayers aren't effective because they aren't fervent. Maybe we give up too soon with our prayers because we don't see immediate results. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us to pray without ceasing. And oftentimes we get really discouraged and, and we stop our prayers. But we stop it before God does something. And we get impatient and we don't wait for God to respond. Or maybe we offer our prayers to God with indifference, ambivalence, or apathy. We're asking God to care about something that we actually don't care about at all. And that's probably why God doesn't answer. He wants you to feel that. He wants you to empathize with someone, to feel what they're going through. Effective prayer must be fervent. Not because we want to emotionally persuade a reluctant God, but because we have a need to have a heart like God. And we can have a heart like God by being fervent for the things that God is fervent for. And notice that the effective prayer is offered by a righteous man. And this is something, this is someone who recognizes that their righteousness exists only in Jesus, is tied to Jesus. That their spiritual walk has to be consistent with the righteousness that is in Jesus, who makes us righteous before God. It's not about being perfect. It's not about you living this upstanding life that only God hears those prayers. God hears the prayers if Jesus is your covering. If Jesus is your righteousness. And there's great power in prayer. The Jews have a saying, penitence can do something, but prayer can do everything. And with prayer, we're in contact with the power of God. 
Verses 17 and 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the, hev- and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Interesting how we uh, talked about rains earlier on, how they were so dependent early in latter rains, and here Elijah says, no rain, three and a half years. Oh. See, Elijah is a model of a serious prayer. Elijah's prayers were answered by God, and his prayer life affected the weather, weather pattern so that people could hear the Word of God, that they would be receptive to the words of God. And everyone prayed for rain back then. They needed it. They would die without it. They didn't have reservoirs like we have today. I mean, they had some pretty awesome cisterns that, were, that are in existence this very day. But they didn't have a way to sufficiently pull that water from the cistern to water crops or to water their livestock. So when Elijah was able to control the weather, he was like the ultimate miracle worker. And that's partially why the disciples were so freaked out on the boat when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Because it showed that Jesus was at least as great as the almighty Elijah. But here James is just putting this miracle worker Elijah in the same boat as us by saying he was a man with a nature like ours. See, these verses show us that Elijah's heart was in tune with God's heart, as ours should be. He prayed for the rain to stop for three and a half years and start only because he sensed it was in the heart of God in the dealing with Israel. Don't you find it interesting that it was three and a half years and so this is the early rain? It's softening the soil, softening those people's hearts for a plowing so that the seed of the gospel can germinate within those people. And notice that Elijah prayed earnestly. This literally means he prayed with prayer. To truly pray by definition is to pray earnestly. Also notice Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. This means that this type of powerful prayer is possible for us today. It's available to us today. And oftentimes we elevate Elijah and think that he was something more than you and I. Not so. He was a man with a nature like ours. He got discouraged. He got impatient. He got hungry, scared, tired, upset. And God uses ordinary people like you and I. Take Paul. Paul was stubborn and ugly, right? And people thought that his aprons and his sweatbands, gross, could heal them. And Peter had a a really bad temper. Yet people would position their sick in his shadow, right? And hope that the shadow would fall on them and heal them. And remember that Moses told the Lord, I'm not eloquent. That he was slow of speech and slow of tongue. But God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Peter, Paul, Moses, Elijah. They all went to the bathroom. Right? They all had pimples as teenagers. They all went through the same emotional roller coasters that you and I go through. Know that God loves you and He wants to use you, not because He's selfish and wants to enslave you to His service, but because He knows it's good for you. He wants to see you become more like His Son, Jesus. And know that it's not about your ability, but it's, a, it's your availability. Elijah had a nature like ours, and what he was able to do is available to us today. Verses 19 and 20, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, 
Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James introduced the topics of sin and confession, and then he reminds us of a need to confront those who have wandered from the truth. And this is the final command that James gives his fellow Christians to restore the wandering Christians. Don't gossip. Don't talk about them. Restore them. And this is one of the most uplifting and encouraging promises of the Bible. That turning a brother or sister toward the right path will not just save their soul, but cover a multitude of sins. In other words, to save someone else's soul is the surest way to save your own. Some Jews at the time regarded some forms of apostasy as unforgivable. But James just swings the door wide open and he welcomes sinners back. And there's nothing that you have done that God can't forgive. God's forgiveness is available to you no matter what you've done. And remember that. Some of you aren't dealing with a heavy sin issue right now, but remember that for the future. Not just for yourselves, but for your spouse, for your kids, your friends. Nothing is beyond the forgiveness of God. And the phrase, wanders from the truth, gives us a good picture of what has happened to a lost brother or sister. See, most people don't set out or have a goal to get lost. They, they wander. And they don't wander deliberately. It just kind of happens, right? And it happens when we're not focused on the truth. When we're not actively living in the truth. When we're not doing what we know to be truth. But even if it's not deliberate, it still gets them off track and possibly in danger. So how do we restore someone? First, we talk to them as brothers or sisters, just as James has talked to us. And secondly, we pray for them, believing the Lord is going to hear us, as in verses 13 through 17. And lastly, we can make sure that our own lives aren't full of judgment, a lack of telling the truth, or a lack of suffering for the Lord because of how we live our life and how we show by our actions how we live our life. And just because we don't judge doesn't mean we don't share the truth. We have to share the truth. That's loving. And we have to remember that it's done in a spirit of love. It's done in a spirit of humility, not of judgment. And we have to remember to have compassion, to suffer with a brother or sister and bear their burdens with them, as Galatians 6 instructs us to do. And our own good example of being like Jesus combined with prayer and our talking to them can restore them. See, there's an awesome promise to us if we restore them. There is a blessing for the one who loves his brother or sister enough to confront them and turn them from the error of their ways. Verse 19 says, turns him back. You don't just sit and wait. Turning implies an action, that there has to be an effort made. This doesn't mean that we condone a behavior or assure him that everything is alright and that God is just gracious and merciful. Yes, those things are true, but we are to bring him or her away from that sin, to turn them away from that sin. We aren't to assure someone who's in sin to have them believe that what they're doing is okay. When I worked as an EMT, I was trained to never tell someone that everything is alright. Why? I don't know that. I don't have the equipment to see if they're bleeding internally. I don't have the equipment to see how their vitals are doing. All I can do is see from the exterior. So I have to bring them to the emergency department of the hospital, right? Where they have a better way of seeing what 
that person is really going through on the inside. And then they can diagnose, is that person going to be alright? See, we don't know if everything is alright because we don't know where that person stands with Jesus. We can't see that inside of them. Romans 8 chapter 1 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But the flip side of that is, there is condemnation for those who aren't in Christ Jesus. But what what we do know is that we can consistently direct someone to Jesus with our words and our actions. We can do that. And we can remind our lost brother or sister of God's goodness, His promises, His love for them. So in turning a sinner from the error of his way, it will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. The phrase, covers a multitude of sins, comes from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. And this is probably referring to not spreading what is meant to be private about a person. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13 says, A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19 says, He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with the one who flatters with his lips. If we can't control our tongue, we aren't paving the way for forgiveness. Being able to control what we say is the most secure way to pave a road towards forgiveness. It allows someone to come back into the community on that road of forgiveness because we haven't let rumors or gossip or slander ostracize them from the community. And we want people to feel that this is an environment that we've created together that they feel accepted into our church and not push them further from wanting to return. And remember that sin looks to isolate people so it can destroy them. Let's not put blockades up to come back. We need to be people who are ready to accept those who are looking for forgiveness, to accept them back into our community. And we we will not able be able to do that as individuals or as a church if we just yap. We have to be able to control our tongues. And we will not only help that individual, but in addition we will bless our entire church community by doing this because it shows people that we love them, that we accept them, that they're isn't anything that God can't forgive. And James concludes with this because this is exactly what he has set out to do through this challenging letter. He wanted to confront us or those of us who have wandered from the living faith. To be so concerned with others and where their path is leading them, leading them that we'll do something to save them. Not just talk about it, but do something about it. Not so that we can be self-absorbed in our own self-righteousness and talk about others and forget about them, but to actively pursue them, to turn them. There was a a zealous evangelical lady who asked uh, William William, uh, Wilberforce. uh, Wilberforce was the liberator of the slaves of the British Empire. And um, she asked him if his soul was saved. And he answered, Madam... I have been so busy trying to save the souls of others that I've had no time to think of my own. James' goal was to save others' souls, save them from death by demanding that they not only hear the word, but they do the word. Because a living faith will have its proof in action. And we are to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. And as we conclude the book of James May we be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and how He speaks to our hearts about different areas of our life. To some of us, that may be our tongue. To others, it may be about envy and strife. 
To others, it may be about lust. To others, about friendship with the world. A desire for worldly things. And I hope and pray that we would pay attention to the things that James has addressed to us in the past couple of months. We need to be doers of the Word. We need to love one another, pray for one another, encourage and strengthen one another, to use our tongues to bless and build people up, not tear them down, to turn a wandering brother or sister from their erroneous ways and save their soul, covering a multitude of sins. And we need to be prepared for the return of Jesus, and we do that by doing those things, by being clothed in the righteous acts, such as the ones James has laid out for us in this letter. The righteous acts of the saints. The saints are you and I. And James has laid laid out the plan for us right here in his book. And I pray that we're all ready for Jesus' return. Let's pray. God, thank you for your servant James. Thank you that uh, you've used him to minister to us and to speak truth to us. Ask, Lord, that you would uh, fill us with your Spirit to go about doing the things that, that we have to deal with in our personal lives, to confess to one another and to pray for one another. I pray that we can uh, expose any type of secret sin that has its strong grip on our lives. And I pray for those of us who are struggling with something, that that would just come out today that those things, those sin issues in our life would be released so that we can be righteous. We know that Jesus covers us and that Jesus makes us righteous. There's no fear in confessing those things because we know that we are a church that is willing and accepting of those who seek a forgiveness from God. In Jesus' name.